And as we get ready to hear the scripture, um, this is one of the parables. So I would encourage you to see what you can sort out from this parable or what maybe you've heard about it in the past. Thank you, Melinda. Mm -hmm. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Holy wisdom, holy word. This morning by telling you um, a story. Maybe some of you have read this. It was in the news last week. Um, Lakewood Church in Florida. If you're familiar with that church, it's pastored by Joel Osteen, a televangelist who promotes the a prosperity gospel. You know, if you believe the right things, you'll be rich. Um, and he and his wife live very faithfully. They practice what they preach because they just bought a $10.5 million mansion. So... Um, his church last Sunday, uh, the offering was stolen out of their safe. Can anybody guess how much that offering was? Oh, somebody gave it away. It was $600,000. It was a very large church. Lakewood is a very big church, and they, I'm sure, have an enormous campus and facilities and obviously an enormous offering. Um, And not all big churches preach a prosperity gospel like Joel Osteen does at Lakewood, Um, but all mega churches are mega. They're big churches. Um, They have very extravagant things about them. Tim and I, when we lived in Indiana, once we went to a church where we dropped our kids off, um, like at a, in the kids' area, there was like a platform level where you sign them in and they get their stickers or whatever, and then they would actually go down a big slide into the kids' area that was at a lower level. It was, it was a little over the top. Um, <laughs> a lot of churches have coffee shops in them now where you can go before or after the worship service and sit and have coffee with your friends. Um, usually they charge something, but I don't know. Um, There was a church in Texas that built a two-story tall fountain in their foyer area. Um, So these churches will do enormous things to draw people in. And most of the time, they're doing it to help people come in and hear the gospel. So it's not always a bad thing, but I think we have to wonder if it's God's will for that church. I think a good contrast to that is how a lot of mainline denominations have moved recently. Um, A lot of the churches in America, like the Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist churches, have been dying. The congregations are getting smaller, and they're having to close their doors. Um, And in response to that, a lot of churches have shifted their focus 
to social justice issues. They're trying to focus more within their community and um, being the hands of Christ in the world around them. And that is wonderful. That's a wonderful focus. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but I still think we need to ask when the things that we do as a church are the will of God for our particular church. Because there's a difference between doing good things, which is fine, and good things can be the will of God, and doing things because they flow from God's heart and into our lives. I have a really powerful example I'd like to share about this, but first I want to talk a little bit about what the church looked like in the first few centuries. And this is just maybe the first 100 or 200 years after Jesus had lived and died and rose. In that time, the church didn't have a lot of structure. They didn't have a lot of buildings and things. They had some pastors and bishops. Oftentimes, if you got to be a bishop, you also got to be martyred, so you had that going on. Um, But even amidst this terrible persecution, the church was able to grow rapidly. And one of the reasons they grew so rapidly was that they lived in a real sense of community. They lived near one another. They helped each other if they were in any trouble. They shared their food and their possessions. And they lived simply. But more than that, they were willing to do things that most other people wouldn't. For example, when illnesses would break out, the Christians in these Roman communities would go out and care for victims of these illnesses. And sometimes they got sick and died themselves. But oftentimes, people would be impressed with their selflessness and their churches would grow. The Christians were able to do this not just because they were good people and because they were trying to do nice things. They were able to do this because they were focused truly on who Christ was and who God was calling them to be in their place, in their lives. And they recognized that living as Christ had lived was more important than looking after their own well-being. Paul talks about this in Philippians 1.21. He says, very simply, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. He means that he looks forward to the day when he dies because he will be united with Christ. And for now, he's willing to keep living and doing what God calls him to. But ultimately, he's looking forward to the day when he can be united with who Christ is. I think that many of us, if we search our hearts, would have a hard time saying that, myself included. I like a lot of things about life. Martin Luther King Jr., years before he was assassinated, he was stabbed in the chest. And the knife was lodged so close to his aorta that the doctors said if he had even sneezed, he would have died. He gave a speech in Memphis, Tennessee, the night before he was assassinated. And in it, he talks about that incident. And he mentions a letter that he received from a little girl when he was recovering. Dear Dr. King, she wrote, Well, it should not matter. I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing to say that I'm so happy you didn't sneeze. King then recounted many reasons why he too was glad he had not sneezed. He described victorious events he had been part of because he hadn't sneezed. 
I wouldn't have been around here when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up, or when the black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill, or later that year to try and tell America about a dream I had had. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. But then he goes on to say that something new had happened to him. Just now, something recent had changed in his life. Something that made his relationship with God different. His relationship with everything that he had been a part of up until now, the civil rights bill, everything. It just didn't matter like it used to. As his speech was gathering momentum, and he was preaching like only a black Southern Baptist preacher can, which I can't, so I'm just going to do my best here. He says, excuse me, he says, I'm so happy I didn't sneeze. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't really matter with me, because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Martin Luther King had a deep sense of peace when he gave that speech. And he even said that all of the things that he had worked for that were clearly the will of God, all those things had paled in comparison with the new sense he had of being up the mountaintop. He didn't worry about getting into the promised land anymore. Moses didn't make it to the promised land. And King wasn't worried about it either. Dr. King at that time was so much more interested in having his heart be close to God and truly knowing God. The parable of the weeds and the wheat is an interesting one. It often gets interpreted as being a parable about the church. Here's the church. We're a wheat field. And what do we do with weeds? Well, we can't go around exterminating them. That's not a friendly way to grow your church. You can't kill off the weeds. So you just have to kind of deal with them and recognize that God's going to sort it all out and it's okay. And that's fine. I, I don't disagree with that. But I don't think that interpretation is unique to the Christian church. I think a lot of organizations could have a similar attitude about about how to deal with weeds. But helpfully, just six verses later, Jesus tells us how to interpret this parable. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. Jesus says that the wheat is the people. The wheat is the followers of Jesus, the Christians, everybody. Everybody is the wheat field. And the weeds are not just the evildoers, but the causes of evil. It's really helpful to understand the other part of this parable, to look at what the Hebrew word for weeds, it's not like a dandelion weed. It's actually the word darnel, which is a category of weed that look a lot like wheat. They grow on a gold stalk. They have a a head that looks like grain. But if you harvest them with the wheat and you grind them into the wheat flour, it ruins the wheat flour. It's very bitter. So these darnels had to be pulled out of the wheat field before the harvest. And usually it was women and children who did the very tedious labor of pulling out the weeds. So I think even in this verse where Jesus is encouraging us to stay focused on the future, the angels will do this work. It's not something we have to do. It's not something that we have to worry about, who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. What our job is to do is to be strong as wheat, to make the wheat field a strong place. So I would argue, if we're going to apply this here at Aldersgate, which is always a scary thing to do because someone's bound to disagree, so that's okay. You can come tell me if you disagree. I can take it. Um... But if we're going to apply it here at Aldersgate, I think a really great place to look at is our leadership change. And Brad does not know I'm preaching on this. He just kind of left town. So (laughs) this is me. This is not Brad. I just want to say that. Um, If we look at at our, our leadership change and how we're shifting towards having teams, a wellness team, and I can't even remember, a youth team, and all these different teams that are going to be doing things, Serving on those teams is great. Having a yoga class, I think, is going to be fantastic. But the difference is whether that's us as an institution or an individual within the church. The church as an institution has a clear call to nourish people's faith, to strengthen people and draw them into the heart of God. And once the church has done that, then the people within the church go out and have yoga classes. The people in the church go out and do outreach dinners. The people in the church work with Sophia's way. The people in the church take that out and provide the inspiration that builds momentum into the civil rights movement. But like Martin Luther King said, that can't be what we're all about. The good things can't be the motivation by itself. The good things have to flow from God's heart into our lives. And then we're not only doing good things, we're doing the will of God. And when we hit hard times, when we run into disagreements, when we have troubles in the church, we won't be overwhelmed by the negativity, by the evil that we see around us. When we have difficulties in life, we can stay focused knowing that who we are is defined in Christ and that what we are doing is is the will of God, and if we fail in what we're trying to do, God will bring someone else along. Because the end of the parable about the wheat and the weeds is that it's not all going to be sorted out. We can't pull up the weeds right now. But in the end, the angels will come. And then we will know that we will have goodness, that goodness will be a part of the creation again. Not only a part, it will be the definition of creation 
Creation will no longer even involve any evil. Those causes will be rooted out. And God's new creation that we've partnered with God to bring about through great deeds like the civil rights movement or through the tiniest deeds like parenting little children or moving into retirement with dignity, the tiniest things even, will be a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that comes and is restored. So, I would just encourage us as we move forward as a church, as an institution that nourishes people's faith, and as we look at the activities that we do as a church, to remember where we are doing things that are based on our institutional goal, our goal as a group, and our goals individually. And rather than feeling discouraged from building a giant slide into the kids' area or doing social justice work to help the poor in our communities, feel encouraged that Aldersgate is a place where we will strengthen one another, strengthen and deepen our faith so the good works we do are not just good works that pass away after a season. They're good works that truly endure into eternity, into the consummation of all things, when God will restore creation and God's kingdom will reign on earth. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you have created a good creation. You are the definition of goodness. And while our world is full of evil, causes of evil, and people who make evil choices, you are a reminder, and this parable is a reminder, that the evil will only endure for a season. That the suffering, whether it's emotional or physical, whether it's in our own lives or the suffering we see in war-torn countries and the families of people missing on a jet, wherever we see evil and suffering, we know that we may not be able to do much about it now. But any work we do, every little thing that we do, if it's done out of your heart, is done for eternity, and that you will bring an end to all of the suffering and all of the pain and root out all the causes of evil. Help us to stand up with Paul and Martin Luther King Jr. and say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us to find our worth in you. We thank you and ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.